So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm 32. We're, we're doing this little mini-series. I, I've just kind of been bumping around in Psalms and just preaching through a Psalm a Sunday. One of the things about the book of Psalms is you'll find that it, it's the full gamut of human experience. You'll find it in the Psalms. You'll find real highs, mountaintop highs of rejoicing for God's given victory and God's done amazing things and the psalmist is rejoicing. It's a mountaintop, but you also find the psalmist at times in the valleys and really discouraged, really disheartened, sometimes very confused. You know, so the, the psalms really capture the whole gamut of human experience and human emotion. So today we're going to look at Psalm 32, and the name of it is Blessed Are the Forgiven. And so last week Bob Dale preached a a message, he preached out of Psalm 30, and I don't know exactly what the title of the message was, I think it was called David's Life Song. And he basically looked at King David's life and the whole spectrum of his whole life the whole amazing journey that he had been on, the highs, the lows, everything. And so Psalm 30 uh, was written at the time that the temple was being dedicated. And so David was very, very old, and most of his life was in the rearview mirror. And it was kind of like his life message of God's goodness, God's faithfulness to him all the way through the years, even when he failed, and failed royally. And so... I just was inspired by that message, and I've been reading a lot about King David, uh, and and like I said, I've been reading this psalm, so I just felt like I I wanted to preach out of this Psalm 32, blessed are the forgiven. And so this also is a psalm of David, and there's two psalms that are really clearly identified with King David and his sin with Bathsheba. The first one is Psalm 51. And the other one is probably Psalm 32. Like if they were in chronological order, you'd probably have Psalm 51. And that's literally David's crying out to God for mercy when he realized how, 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 mess, how much he had failed and how much he had messed up with Bathsheba and when he sinned. And then Psalm 32 is basically would kind of fall in right after Psalm uh, 51. So Psalm 51, for those that were born, in the, uh, born again in the 80s, uh, Keith Green wrote a song about this, you know? Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Yeah. Sorry for the live stream, I know this doesn't sound good. <laughs> but renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And renew a right spirit within me. No, if you, got, like, if you got saved in the 80s, that brings back warm fuzzies for you right now. I can tell you right now. 
And just so you know, Keith Green didn't actually write the words to that song. He found it in the Bible. <laughs> okay? He found it in Psalm 51. And it's basically a record of King David crying out to God for mercy when he realized his great moral failure, his, his great sin with Bathsheba. Well, one of the verses in Psalm 51 says this. It says, after, after the song I just sang to you, it says, Then, after God restores to me the joy of salvation, then I will treat, teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So David says, Lord, if you restore me, if you, if you forgive me, if you blot out my, my horrible sin, then I will in turn someday be able to use this as a lesson to teach others. Okay? I believe Psalm 32 is that lesson. Okay? Psalm 32 says uh, in the, in the like, divine inspired subtitle, it says a mass kill of David. Well, what's a mass kill? That's a Greek word. What does that mean? A mass kill basically is an instruction or a teaching. So Psalm 32 follows Psalm 51, and it's where David teaches us about what the blessing of being forgiven for our sin. It's a great psalm. So let me read it. Let's read it together if you have your Bible. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you. Now, the voice changes here in verse 8. The first seven verses is, God, is David kind of crying out to God. Verse 8 is God speaking to David. And he says, I will instruct and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or I will not stay near you. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this uh, passage of Scripture. Thank you for this psalm. And Lord, I thank you that we have in Scripture King David's failure, not just to say, aha, what a slug he is. 
What a sorry excuse of a human being. How could he have done that? No, it's, it's in the Bible so that all of us frail sinners at times can have great hope and great confidence that you forgave him, you restored him, you had mercy on him. And then, Lord, we can take great courage and we can come to you also. And what you've done for him, you want to do for all of us each and every day. So, Lord, I thank you. I praise you. Blessed are those whom you have forgiven. Lord, we want to walk in that blessing every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is a great, great, great psalm. I love this psalm. So, um, do you remember the game show, The Price is Right? Okay, The Price is Right, ding to some, it's usually a lady, sometimes it's a guy, they come running down the stairs and everybody's clapping and going crazy. And so, you know, if you, if you guess the price closest to the, you know, the, the, the um, whatever they're, they're saying, you know, what, what does this item cost? And everybody guesses what it costs. And if you come closest, I guess you're not allowed to go over. Is that right? Right? It's got to be under. And they give you that thing or they, they, you win something. And so in that game show, I remember it as a kid. I haven't watched it for years, obviously. Um, so, I, uh, you know, they would always say, okay, you won a set of furniture, you know, a couch and a love seat and a table. Great. Everybody's happy for them. And then later on in the game, you get to either trade that, basically risk it, for what's behind door number one, or door number two, or door number three. Right? Everybody tracking with me? Say that again. Am I? Oh, that's making the... Ah, I'm sorry. I don't watch a lot of game shows, to be honest with you. So here's the point I'm trying to make, which I'm not doing very well. Here's the point I'm trying to make, okay? No matter what, no matter if, if you have experienced God's forgiveness for your sin through Jesus Christ, I don't care what's being offered behind door number one, curtain number three, whatever, wherever it might be, it doesn't matter if you, have ex- if you and I have experienced God's forgiveness that is the greatest thing we could experience as a human being, okay? No, no pleasure on planet earth is as important or as significant or as valuable as being forgiven for all of our sin. No matter what the, no matter what it might be, no matter what, even if it's not even a sinful, wicked pleasure, it might even be a wholesome pleasure. It might be a trip to who knows where on planet Earth, and, and, and it's really enjoyable. None of that compares to the value of knowing the forgiveness of our sin. Jesus put it this way. So what is the profit if a man gains the whole world? You could be a multi-billionaire today. And if we don't have our sins forgiven, we are lost and broke and poverty-stricken indeed. Amen? Amen. And so this is what he's saying in verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. This is the greatest blessing God can bestow upon you and I, and that is all of our sins being wiped out. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That is the greatest thing as a human being that we can experience. Okay? Now, I'm going to go through the next, there's three more points in this. And you're going to see the word selah three times in this psalm. And the word selah is a, is a Hebrew word that basically means, you know, think about that. The, the psalmist will say something profound, and then it's a, basically a pause. And he's like, hmm, ponder that. Or I'll use it this way, put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know what I mean? <laughs> basically, chew on that a while. So you'll see this word selah all through the Psalms, and it's basically an opportunity in the Psalm to pause and consider and meditate on something that was just shared. That's three times shared in this Psalm. The first one is this. Now, what I want you to see is that the Psalm shows a progression of this idea of us being forgiven by God. There's There's a progression. There's a journey going on here. Okay, so verse 3 and 4 basically is this. It it talks about um, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is one of the greatest gifts that God can give a human being. Godly sorrow. Look what he says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Now remember the story. Remember the... Remember David's sin with Bathsheba. We're going to talk about that in a second. But he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So basically, David was miserable in his place of unrepentant sin. He was miserable. He, he, matter of fact, Psalm 38 is even a, a more detailed um, description of the person who God is basically convicting. God is, is you know, the, 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 one of the best things God can do in our lives is when we're not happy in sin. That is one of the best gifts God can give us. When we're miserable in sin. Well, let's just look at Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. (coughs) There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester. Because of my foolishness, I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day long I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. I'll stop there. The point is, David is describing in great detail and with great eloquency really, just the idea of when he was in rebellion to God, he was miserable. He was miserable. I, I, I can't say it enough. It's the goodness of God in our life when we're not right with Him, when life stinks. 
when life is miserable. It really is the kindness of God when we are, we're really hurting because we're sinning, because we're in rebellion, because we're not right with God. And he, he allows us to be miserable. That's actually a really good thing. Now, let me just say, I don't, we don't like to see people that we love in our lives going through misery. We don't enjoy that. It's not fun. But we have to realize that God will many times use the pain, self-induced pain, to actually be part of the process to lead someone to genuine repentance. And as hard as it is to watch somebody go through it, or maybe you've been there yourself, and probably every one of us can relate at some level, pain and suffering and sorrow brought on ourselves because of our own foolishness. Right? Everyone can relate to this is how sin works. We, we, we've made ourselves miserable. There's no one really to blame but us. And this is what David is describing. I know from, and, and I, I mean, I could preach the whole message just on that verse. But I, I know for me, when I was a college kid, at 18 years of age, I, came to, I went to Potsdam College in 1982. I described to people, I was a happy sinner. Like, I literally was. I wasn't miserable. I was happy. I was easygoing, happy-go-lucky. I, I had a lot of friends, kind of lived for the weekend, did the normal college freshman type stuff. But over time, I had the gospel shared to me, and that seed was lodged in my heart. And I had my dad and my friend John became genuine Christians, and they talked to me about about you know, giving an account to God someday for my life and what Jesus had done for me on the cross so that I could have a relationship with Him. And that was lodged in my heart. And I was a happy sinner as a freshman at 18. By the time I was 20, I was a miserable sinner. I was miserable. I hated Christians. They're always happy. They bothered me. I mean, they were so nice to me. They were so kind to me. And I just would grumble about them under my breath. And I'd drink a few beers and I'd say, eh, talk to me about Jesus. I knew they were right. I did. I always knew they were right. But I was miserable. And you know what? It's the kindness and goodness and mercy of God that I went from being a happy sinner to a miserable sinner. How many know many times we are thick? We are really thick. We don't learn easily. And it's only through great pain sometimes do we get to where we call out to God for His help and for His mercy. Amen? That is exactly what the psalmist is describing. And I could read... Actually, I'm not going to read it, but I can just tell you. If you read the biography of many Christians, this is something that's common in so many Christians. Martin Luther... Like Martin Luther was miserable as a Catholic priest trying to find peace with God. He was miserable. He was tormented in his soul. I read another guy, uh, Charles Spurgeon. As a young man, he was depressed. He was discouraged. He was down. You know, he, was, he was really distraught. So, many, so my point is this. That anguish of soul can really be a great blessing in our lives. May we have the wisdom when we see people 
in that process that we don't short-circuit it. You know, that we don't go quickly, give them, a, give them an aspirin, try to take away the pain. Try to mask the pain really quick. Take two, you know, take two ibuprofen. Get a good night's sleep it'll ma- and make it all better. Give them a pacifier. No, may we have the grace and the wisdom to say, my friend, I want to help you. Throw your arm around people that are hurting. But help, may we point them to Jesus. May we let them know, my friend, please hear me. The problem in your life, the pain in your life is because you're not yet right with God. You have not yet experienced His forgiveness. Now, as a forgiven person, trust me, you're not going to have a perfect day uh, from now until eternity. You'll still have some struggles. You'll still have problems. Okay, It's not like the the day you receive Christ, you're going to go to heaven. Um, But you will be doing something that will radically change the condition of your soul when you experience the forgiveness of sins. Amen? So, he said, he describes how miserable he is in verse 3 and 4. Verse 5, the psalmist basically says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. So here is where the, pro- the progression is. At some point, we have to come clean. We have to acknowledge our sin. Now, back, let's, let's think for a second. The context of this psalm is in the story with David and Bathsheba. Now, I'm going to just mention some stuff about David and Bathsheba. So, Um, For those of you that aren't super familiar with the story, David was probably in his early 50s when he sinned with Bathsheba. So he's the king of Israel. He's well established as the king. He's uber wealthy. He's uber powerful. He's got tons of wealth. He's got multiple wives. I mean, this guy's really powerful. And in his early to mid 50s, it says in the spring of the year, when the kings were normally out to war, he was still at home in his palace. Basically, had grown a little bit soft. And luxury had, uh, had, had kind of gotten to him a little bit. How many of you know when you don't have much, um, that can be a difficult trial in your life? But another trial in your life is when things are going actually pretty good. Things are going pretty easy. You got money in the bank. Everybody's yeah, you got food in the cut. Cu- you got you know food in the cupboards, money in the bank. Everything's going well. Mark it down. That too can be a time of great temptation. We don't think of it that way, but it's absolutely the truth. And that's what happened in King David's life. So he's out there. All the kings are in war. Uh, he stayed home. He wakes up from a nap in the afternoon. He looks out over the balcony. He goes walking out, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing and he loses his mind he goes crazy he says who is she well that's Uriah the Hittite's wife he says bring her to me you know the story probably Bathsheba's brought to King David the king sleeps with her this is Uriah's wife this is not his wife he already had a bunch of them but he has he he goes after this woman and sleeps with her. And then a week or so later, he gets a report. Or maybe it was weeks later, I guess. 
gets a report from Bathsheba. Uh, King, um, I'm with child, and you're the dad. Because her husband, who's a loyal soldier, is out in the field at war, where David should have been. So, not, this is not a good day for David. So he hears that Bathsheba's pregnant. So he goes, okay, now what am I going to do? So he goes, oh, okay, now I know what I'm going to do. So here's what I want you to think about in this story. Think of how much time and energy and resources David spent to try to cover his sin. Okay? It's one thing to have like a, a, a lapse of judgment, and it, I'm not minimizing it, and he committed adultery with this beautiful woman. But then the story shows in great detail how hard he worked to cover his sin. Sin is bad enough, but when we spend all this time and energy trying to cover it up, it makes it ten times worse. So then he goes, all right, I know what I'll do. I'm going to have Uriah home from the battle. So he brings Uriah home from the battle. Now, Uriah, David's probably 52. Uriah's probably like, you know, early 30s, mid-30s, a really dedicated soldier. Matter of fact, Uriah, out of all the thousands of soldiers in King David's army, you know, there's some, a couple lists in the Scriptures that talk about David's mighty men, and Uriah is actually on that list. So he's not just one of thousands of soldiers. He's like the top 37 guys as far as loyal and as far as like really lean and mean, I mean, he's like the cream of the crop kind of guy. So he calls Uriah home, and Uriah, how's it going, my friend? Oh, King, it's going really well. We're battling, we're working hard. Because I'm so glad to have you home. Well, King, why did you have me home? Uh, you know, I just wanted you to have some R&R. You're, you're one of my top 37 guys, you know, and uh, I just wanted to bless you and have you home here, and it's so good to see you. All right, uh, take it. Why don't you go home and enjoy the evening with your wife? So Uriah leaves. And Uriah is such a guy of integrity. He doesn't go home to sleep in his own bed with his own beautiful wife. He says, No, I'm not going to do that. My guys, my comrades are still out at war. I'm going to go sleep on the floor with the other servants at the, at the gate. I'm not going to go home and sleep with my wife. So he doesn't go home and sleep with his wife. Could you see David, all the mental energy? Can you see he's like, oh my God, I thought that would have worked. <sighs> now what? All right, I know what I'll do. I'll have him over for dinner tonight. So David invites him. The, so that first night, he, he refuses to go and sleep at home with his wife. So the next day, David says, come on, come on over for a meal. And so he has him over for a meal. And the story actually records that David, um, uh, I wanted to read this. Where does it say it? Uh, it? It literally says that David gave him food and drink to the point that he was drunk. So David gets Uriah drunk on the second night home from war. Uriah, you know, David's thinking, oh yeah, of course he's going to go home and sleep with his beautiful wife now. What does Uriah do? Again, 
a man of incredible integrity. He refuses to go home, sleep in his own bed, and sleep with his wife, and he again sleeps outside with the servants. He did that, I think, in reading this story. He did that two nights in a row. Do you, do you, can you see how bad? I mean, it's one thing to have a moral failure in a moment of time. David did that. I'm not minimizing what he did with Bathsheba. But now, all the time and energy he's spending trying to cover his sin. So after two nights of drinking with the king, he refuses to go home and sleep at home with his wife. Then David comes up with a third plan, plan C. He says, okay, I know what I'll do. So David handwrites a note to his commander, Joab. Hands it to Uriah. Knowing how loyal Uriah is, knowing he won't even read the note along the way because he said, hey, just give this to Joab. He knows he won't even read it. That's how committed this guy is to David. And so Uriah takes this note, hands it to Joab. Joab opens the note. And it says, hey, Joab, I want you to go and you know, take the battle right to the enemy. And then all of a sudden, I want you to draw back quickly and leave Uriah the Hittite exposed. I'm sure Joab's heart was really broken when he read this. He was probably disgusted. He was probably disappointed in his king. He was probably disillusioned. I could imagine all of that. But he does what he's told to do. And that's what happens. They charge the battle. They draw back. They basically leave Uriah completely exposed in the battle. And sure enough, he dies. Then the king has the gall to write this, by the way. In, uh, he says this to Joab. He sends a message. He says, say, say this to Joab, the commander of the army. He says, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. So he basically tries to placate Joab and say, oh, you know, uh, war, is, war is hell. You know, war is tough. Some people die, some people don't. You never know who's going to go. And he just placates him completely. The point I'm making is this. Is David went to great, uh, great, a, a lot of effort to hide his sin. And so in verse... 5 of Psalm 32, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. Here's the reality. Many times, I'm not going to preach down at anyone because we've all done this. How many times have we worked to keep up a good front to other people? Right? How many times have we thought, well, if anybody really knew what I was like, they wouldn't like me. They certainly wouldn't love me. I don't even think they'd like me. Right? We've all, as human beings, can relate to that. David basically says, enough's enough. <laughs> I'm not playing this game anymore. God, I acknowledge my sin to you. Think about how silly it is for us to run away from God. I ran, I ran, I've run, we've all run away from God. How stupid is that? You know what I mean? <laughs> he already knows everything about us anyway. But to just come clean, to just bring the thing into the light, to stop hiding it, that is so significant and so important in really experiencing God's forgiveness. 
So we see here, we see the progression. First we acknowledge our sin. Then, uh, we, first we acknowledge our misery is our own fault. Then we acknowledge our sin. And lastly, look what it says here in verse, uh, verse 6 and 7. It says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters... They shall not reach Him. You are a hiding place for Me. You preserve Me from trouble. You surround Me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. So at some point along the way, we need to come clean to God. And then we need to realize that God is no longer our adversary. He actually is our advocate in Jesus Christ. Okay, earlier on it says God's hand was heavy upon Me. But then at some point, the psalmist realizes, God, you're the one who delivers me. You're the one that preserves me. And isn't that what the cross is all about? Right? The cross is all about us. You know, at one point, we're enemies to God because of our rebellion. But then we realized, oh, wait a minute. God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He was our enemy. And now, because of the blood of Jesus, He is truly our friend. So let me, let me end by saying this. I'm kind of uh, losing my, my time here. Look at verse 8 and 9. This is really where I wanted to go. One of the significant things. When we experience God's forgiveness in our life, okay, um, this is where ultimately is God's intent is where it goes here. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So here's the, here's the end of this thing. When we are forgiven, God wants us to stop being stubborn. He, he doesn't want to have to deal with us like a mule. You know what I mean by that? Mules are like his, they're, they're notoriously stubborn. They're really stubborn animals. They don't listen well. They're not easily led or easily guided. Instead of being a mule, who the only way a mule can be controlled is you got the bit in its mouth and you yank its head one side or the other and you kick it and you whip it and you have to put a lot of pressure on it from the outside to get it to move. Just the opposite. When we are forgiven, and we're in right standing with God, God wants to be able to deal with us like a parent and a trained young child. Okay? I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What, what is that talking about? That's like a, a, a metaphor, a little, a little picture of a parent and a young child. Think about a five-year-old kid. And the parent and the five-year-old, this is like they're totally in sync. Okay, like the dad, I'll, I'll speak for dads. The dad and the five-year-old are like totally engaged. And I remember when my kids were young and like say we'd go to grandma's house. And grandma had lots of little knickknacks. And those knickknacks were really important to grandma. And so my five-year-old would get a big pep talk before we'd go to grandma's house. Okay. No touching this. Say please. Say thank you. Be respectful. You know, uh, don't just go to the refrigerator on your own. You know, so they get a big pep talk before they go. 
And then as we're there, didn't happen all the time, but, <laughs> but in theory anyway, this is how it's supposed to work. The five-year-old would go, would go to grab something. I should get in the camera here. The five-year-old would go to grab something, and it'd be like, he'd look up at dad. And literally, if we were like in sync, if we were like totally on our A-game here, a, a parent that's fully engaged and a five-year-old who's being attentive, like the dad can say all kinds of stuff with just the simplest nod of the head, mm-hmm. simplest wink of the eye, like, okay, or little, little wink, okay, it's all good, you know. Grandma's given, uh, you know, candy, and after about, you know, uh, Tootsie Pop number 18, you know, at, t- at one point, Dad's like, okay, that's enough, you know, and it, th- like, just with a wink of the eye, with a little smile, with a little frown, whatever it is, a parent and a child, there's so much can be communicated in that little, gentle, nuanced way. That's what God wants in our relationship with Him. He doesn't like... You've heard the old saying, yeah, God had to hit me over the head with a two-by-four. Guess what? He'd rather not have to do that. Seriously, that's what He's saying. Don't be like a mule. Don't be stubborn. Don't be thick-headed. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't keep learning the hard way. Have be sensitive of heart. When we, this is the, this is the mark of a mature believer, I, I, and I haven't arrived in this by any means, but when we, our hearts are sensitive to God. When we sin, we, it bothers us, and we quickly run to Him. It doesn't mean a, a, a mature believer, believer doesn't sin. We sin a lot, but we run to Him. We don't want, we don't want to have to be stubborn and thick-headed and stiff-necked. We want that. That's such a cool little picture of I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Just little winks, little frowns, little smiles, or little head shakes totally direct the, the, the parent-child that are totally connected. That's the way God wants our relationship with Him. Amen? That's such a cool picture. That's such a great picture. So let me, let me say this in conclusion. Um, it says in Psalm 1, I mean Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed are those whose transgression is, is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So the Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Romans, quoted this exact same verse when he was making the case that we are right with God not by our own works, but we are right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. So when I'm talking about repentance, I'm not talking to you about promising God you'll do better next time. Okay, that's not repentance. Uh, I'm, that's not forgiveness. Uh, I'm not saying um, that you're going to... like have this great big long list of good deeds that you're trying to do to outweigh your bad deeds. That is not the Christian message at all. Okay? The message of the gospel is that we are justified by faith 
in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. That's it. We have no works that we can add to the equation. This verse in uh, Psalm 32, Paul quotes it verbatim in Romans 4. Let me just read a few of these verses. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham did no works to get right with God. He simply believed what God said, and that's what made him right with the Lord. He said, now to him who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as something that's due him. But to the one who does not work, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against the whom the Lord will not count his sin. So, my question to you, my challenge to you, is have you just completely put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? In what He has done for you on the cross. That's the means by which you and I can experience forgiveness. It's not because we do better. It's not because our good works outweigh our bad works, works our, our sin. It's only because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's why we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the straw that drinks up uh, and receives the gift of eternal life. Okay, The living water of eternal life. Faith is that straw. Faith doesn't save us in an end in itself. Faith is in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Every day, you have to remind yourself of this. Every day as a Christian, you have to preach the gospel to yourself. This isn't just for the, for the unbeliever to find out how to get into the kingdom of God and how to be right with God. This is something that believers need to remind ourselves of every day. This is how we are right with God through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Amen? So, Lord, we thank You so much. And God, help us to live in the reality every day, Jesus, of Your finished work. Help us to rejoice. Lord, when we sin, help us to just run to You a lot quicker. Lord, help us to not, not wallow in our struggles. Help us to run to You quickly. And Jesus, thank You for Your shed blood. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Lord, the, the Christian message, the good news is not, hey, try harder and do better. Lord, that is not the good news. The good news is Jesus died for me. And Lord, help us to live every day in light of Your love and Your sacrifice on our behalf. And Lord, even when we are struggling because we're not walking in the light of that, help us to run to You quicker. And Lord, help us to when we see people that are struggling and hurting and and their life is miserable, and it's because they're not right with you. Help us to point them to you over and over and over again. Lord, thank you and praise you and bless you. Let me end by reading the last two verses. It says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, 
And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Blessed are the forgiven. The greatest thing that you and I could ever experience is God's forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.